Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high-profile and under-the-radar cases from across the country every week. We are recording this on February 5th, 2020. I'm Anna Garcia, and joining me today is criminal defense attorney Mike Cavaluzzi, Thanks for coming back on our show, Mike. You've been on this podcast before. You're a criminal defense attorney here in the Los Angeles area. That's right. And you handle everything from the little stuff, which is serious, to murder cases. Yeah, to pretty serious stuff. Murder cases, sexual assault cases, child abuse cases, like we'll be discussing here today. So everything under the sun, I handle it. And you started as a public defender. I did. I was a public defender for many years and went into private practice in 2001. So it's been two decades almost. So you kind of private practice. You you see the the criminal the criminal justice system from both sides. I do. I've represented people who are indigent, meaning that they can't afford lawyers and come from different walks of life than, say, some of my private clients that retain me and have money to afford all of the best resources and best representation. All right. Well, we're so glad you're with us because we're going to need your help on these two <laughs> cases. This is what we're looking at this week. In Florida, a newborn baby is the subject of an Amber Alert after three women were found dead in a Miami home, and the baby's alleged abductor, his father, was found dead 300 miles away from the murder scene. But first, two parents have been arrested after investigators find the skeletal remains of a child in the roof attic of their home. This is an unbelievable story. This is the story of Rafael and Maribel Loera. This is a couple. They're married. They were arrested and they are currently facing charges of child abuse after three children were removed from their home and human remains were found belonging to a child who apparently died in 2017. It's amazing how this was all uncovered. Everything goes back to one little girl who called for help because she had been left alone in the house. And had she not made that call for help, we would not know any of this. And she would not be in a safer place. So this little girl, even she may not have realized it when she called for help, but she she changed her life and the life of her brother and sister. That's right. That's right. So I find a little bit of hope in this unbelievably tragic story. So this is a Phoenix couple. 
who is accused of abusing three adopted children and hiding the remains of a fourth child in the attic of the home. And again, it was uncovered by the little girl who was left alone. So on January 20th, police receive a call from an 11-year-old girl who says that she has been left home alone for two days. She's hungry and she's scared. So the girl also managed to tell investigators that her foster mother was in Minnesota with her two younger siblings. Police arrive at the house, and, Michael, it is a mess. There is human feces all over the floor. It does not look like this child has been taken care of. So the little girl, she's 11 years old, she gets taken into protective custody by the police. She tells the officials that her stepmother, the one who presumably is in Minnesota, Maribel, was physically abusive to her, and she had a bad temper. Now, when police arrive at a scene like this, and I've always felt this, and I I say it over and over again when I do these cases, I generally believe the children. They generally don't lie about this stuff once you can get them to talk. Well, with some notable exception, we've heard of obviously cases like the McMartin case. Yes. And um, some of those cases way back in the 80s in which children had been coached. Um, But generally in these spontaneous calls, I agree with you, it would be rare that you would find a child who's actually lying about something like that. What I find um, so incredible about this story is that it's the latest in so many that we've been seeing like this, from Amanda Berry having the courage to break out of that home and call the police, from the Turpin family, the the couple in Paris, California, that had 13 kids that were malnourished, and one of those kids found the the courage to come forward. The Govinda brothers, known as the Wolf Pack out of New York, those brothers came forward and had been cloistered in their apartment for so many years. There are all these stories of these kids where things are happening, such horrific things behind closed doors, and then at some point, not only do these kids show this incredible resolve, incredible spirit to survive the circumstances, but then the extraordinary courage to come forward and make that call to turn their captors in, whether those captors are a stranger, like with Amanda Berry and those girls, or whether it's their own parents, like the Turpins or the Govindas or um, these girls here, this girl, this little girl here. It's always shocking how these things happen in neighborhoods where there are houses across the street, yes. next door, behind, and yet no one knows anything. Yes, yes. No one knows anything. No one sees anything. No one hears anything. And I always think, how is this possible? Yes. And the circumstances are not just mildly abusive. They're extreme circumstances where kids are chained to beds, where the house is in the kind of condition where you would think that kind of condition would be noticeable by neighbors. But I think it also shows that we live in a society in which we don't pay, we're not close to our neighbors the way that I think people were maybe 50 or 60 years ago, that there are things happening behind closed doors that become almost impenetrable, even when you're living a mere 20, 30 feet away. What's unclear in this case, and we're getting into the details now, is it doesn't even appear that this child went to school. And I'm not so sure the other two went to school. Because she told the police that, for the most part, she always stayed alone at home. Well, what are you doing home alone? You should be yeah. in school. Yeah. So how did people not notice 
that she was supposed to be and, in school. And she had visible bruising, bruising from oh. being stricken by the mother. Oh, horrible. Um, but with ropes, I think, and with knots at the end of them. It yeah, was... she would take – the little girl told police that she, that the mother, the stepmother or the adoptive mother – it's a little unclear because the parents are referred to in such different ways you know, by the police and in published reports. Um, so we're going to say the mother in this case – uh, would take an extension cord and then she would tie knots in it yeah. and then hit her with it. And then the child told her that she would also take the little girl and slam her in the head. And the police said that the uh, bruises and the injuries on her body were consistent with being struck with a rope-like yeah. object. Yeah. So how frightening is that? So police walk into this mess. They see a little girl telling an unbelievable tale and it's getting worse the more she tells them. And by looking at them, they're thinking, we think she's telling the truth. So she goes on to tell the police, here's where everything changes. The little girl, she's 11, tells the police that she had an older sister who disappeared two years ago, just vanished. Uh, she says that she was told by the mother that the sister had been adopted to a family out in Colombia. But the father had told the girl, this is everything she's telling yeah. the police. Yeah. The father said that the sister had been sent to, to Mexico and that she would have been 11 at the time. So that, that's a very unusual story. So a week later, and I'm sure this you've seen this a lot, Child Protective Services in this case, it would have been the Arizona Department of Child Safety. They did a follow up at the home because they knew there were more children there. So they're looking for potential child abuse being committed against the two remaining children in the home. The father answers the door. He says his wife and his two kids are home. The wife doesn't want to talk to officials, but he does but hand he turns over, over the kids. Yeah, but he, <laughs> but he turns over the kids, which, again, was probably, uh, you know, the kids were being saved at that moment. That's right. Being pulled out of here. But this story gets crazier if it's humanly possible. On the same day that the children are removed from the home, the second set, there's a fire at the house. Firefighters are called to the very same house where the kids have just been removed, and it's on fire. So at first, the father tells him some crazy story about, oh, you know, my wife. Trying to light a fire. <laughs> right. Or working by the fireplace and the entire thing caught on fire. And the police are like looking and they're not so sure about this story, but they are knocking down the fire in the meantime. Michael, when they're knocking down the fire, so, you know, sometimes they have to uh, open holes uh, in the side of drywall or the ceiling to make yep. sure that there's ventilation and that and so they can take the fire out. They open something like a hole in the ceiling and in the attic, they find human bones, the remains of a human being. And this is when the dad starts talking. So the firefighters call the police back to the home and say, we have a situation here. We have just found human right. remains. Oh, I don't even know. I mean, there's so much more to tell you about this. But at this point, you've got one child telling a story of uh, horrific child abuse, two others who have been taken away, and now the remains of a fourth, of a fourth child, which we end up finding out later who that um, fourth is and that it is a child. So what is interesting here is that while the father is talking to police, both at the scene of at the fire at, the, at his home and then at police headquarters, he starts changing his story quite a bit. Then he names himself as a victim of the abuse. 
Oh, he does, doesn't he? Yes, yeah, yeah. He he. So he has quite a tale to tell, and sort of shifts all the blame over to to his wife. He says that he's afraid of his wife that's because right. she physically abuses him. That's right. And therefore, that's why he's never reported anything. He doesn't admit to abusing the children. He tells the authorities that she was abusive to the children, yep. but there was nothing he could do because if he tried to protect them, she would hit him. Yep. <laughs> with that's a broom right. and I guess the extension cord. Not much of a defense, I would think, for the police. Well, it could be a defense. I mean, it's an odd defense because it's coming from the man. Mm -hmm. um, it is not uncommon for women to make that claim mm -hmm. that they are being abused along with their children. So the origin of it is kind of odd, right? And it makes okay. it unbelievable. But at the same time, again, going back to, say, the Govinda brothers out of New York, the wife claimed also to have been a victim of the abuse um, by the father. And the, the brothers uh, endorsed that and said that, in fact, their mother was victimized. So as they interview these little kids, the kids might uh, portray a man who seemed lost and very under the control of his wife and was concerned, if not for his own safety, that if he were, if he stood up for the children, that she might take it out on them. So there may be some truth there. I mean, at first blush, I think our, our response would be, how does the man not stand up to the woman, right? Or I but always think that he's covering up for himself, that he's been caught by police. And so he's going to tell a story to try and cover himself and blame it on anybody else but himself. Uh, that doesn't mean, you know, that he isn't telling the truth. That's just, I'm very suspicious. I, I will say what is interesting to me, though, from what I understand the wife's bail is significantly higher than his. And I'm wondering if her bail isn't higher because the kids themselves, especially the daughter who reported the abuse, really did primarily point the finger at her. And that he may have been a very responsible bystander, a horrific parent for allowing that abuse to take place. Perhaps he wasn't the one so aggressively inflicting that abuse. And maybe that's why his bail is $100,000 and hers is $350,000. That's a significant difference. So there might be some truth in what he's saying. And I agree with you. You approach this very much with skepticism because you have a man who clearly is still trying to destroy evidence. He ultimately admits yes. that they do uh, set the house on fire. He admits a fear of taking the daughter who he claims was ill. And of course, they will do whatever kind of evaluation on the remains they can. Um, but he says that she was sick and died on the way to the hospital, I this believe. Is, right. So the what daughter who died. So what you're talking about is we're talking about the girl who disappeared two years ago. Yes. Right. That daughter. She it, they found out those were the remains of the girl who disappeared, who now we know died. The father tells police that she was very ill and he didn't know what to do. Uh they waited too long. She was vomiting. She was having convulsions. Yep. He claims they were going to take her to the hospital and that she died before she could That's receive right. medical care. And then he tells the authorities that he and his wife wrapped her in a sheet and put her up in the attic. And motivated by the fear that they would take the other kids away, that if they found out that their um, the way that, that they treated the daughter that was sick by not giving her the care that she needed in a timely way— 
that they would then remove their other children. They didn't want that to happen. And out of that fear, they decided to hide the remains, to bury the remains. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of reason, as you say, to be suspicious and skeptical of that version of events. But again, this is where we are in the very early stages of an investigation. And we could find out that he is equally as much of a monster as apparently his wife seems to be, or that perhaps he was under some kind of spell of control from her, and that in fact she was the mastermind, she was the violent one, and that he simply is, on some level, a, a, a victim of her of her own violence. Well, he did tell the police when he finally started telling what we believe to be closer to the truth that. In addition to covering up the evidence by setting the fire, he also claimed that he was feeling despondent and depressed and was very upset because now three children had been taken away. He knows he's got another dead child in the house and the police are coming after him and he probably saw no no way out. I am just so overwhelmed by the fact that this went on for as long as it did. And these three... Well, no, all four, the three children who are still alive and the fourth who is dead, that they're all adopted. Like what agency said, look at this family, look at this couple, let's give them more kids because look at what a great job they're doing raising the ones they have. I I am. uh, What kind of system awards monsters more children? Well, I mean, again, I think we want to look really closely at the history in terms of how this developed, right? I mean, it seems to me that there has to be some sort of mental health history for one or both of these parents. And where were they at the time that they adopted these children? I'm not sure when exactly that happened, Mm -hmm. how old the children were, how long they had had care and custody of the children prior to this developing. Um, You know, what event may have happened that precipitated a some sort of a collapse in that household, because I agree with you 100 percent. If this is the state of that house as it had existed when they adopted these kids, then what agency allows this to happen with literally no real meaningful investigation? Right. Because there can't be meaningful investigation that wouldn't have 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 yielded um, them finding out that this was a horrific environment for these kids. So it's either the agency that utterly and completely failed here, or at some point after the agency perhaps made a responsible decision to place these kids with these parents, something happened that precipitated this kind of behavior. Like I said, whether it's mental illness, whether it's perhaps some kind of horrific event which led to a collapse in, 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 the, in the household itself, Um, that's what's going to be interesting to find out, right, is that where does the blame lie? It clearly lies with the parents, but does it lie with these agencies as well? I think to some degree, yes, there has to be. I think you'll probably end up being right, but we don't know how many years they had these kids and sort of what the circumstances were of them having those children, how they were adopted, how they came to them, because they may claim that they're adopted, but maybe it will turn out that they were not. Yeah, these kids could be stolen. They could be. They, and they could have been coming in from other countries. Yeah, we have were, no idea. Yeah, we don't know. Uh, I'm. Uh, here's the other thing. The, the child who died and was put in the attic, the father told the police that when they do the autopsy and the medical examiner looks at the bones, 
I mean, he said this before they've even looked at the bones. He said, you're going to see that she was abused. There will be signs of abuse, which makes me think, wow, if you can tell that from the bones of a child, what kind of conditions did she live under and what kind of conditions I'm going to say, you know, I don't she could have just died or she could have been killed. Well, it's also really you you question what does he mean when he says she was sick? Sick from what? How badly beaten was she? I mean, are we talking about a child that was maybe malnourished, starved to illness, mm-hmm. beaten into sickness? Or are we talking about a child that got the flu and wasn't treated um, appropriately? And it seems to me that when he already starts to lay the groundwork, that they're going to find evidence of physical abuse I think there's going to be a significant argument that that kind of extreme physical abuse perhaps led to her becoming so sick that it caused her to die. Because they have not been charged with murder in in any of the degrees. They've only been charged with child abuse and some associated charges there, but not. Well, well, that's that's becomes one of the most difficult things for law enforcement. And we see this also in these cases over and over again, is that when all the the um, police have, when all investigators have, are remains that are perhaps up to three years old, how useful will those remains be in helping them determine the exact cause of death? And if they can't determine cause of death, it is hard to establish a murder charge. Some kind of degree of criminal liability, some kind of homicide or abuse charge Probably they can get to there mm-hmm. based on the remains, but can they get to murder based only on the remains if the remains don't allow them to conclude the actual cause of death? That could be a real barrier to a murder charge here. Do you think that the children's testimony could possibly change that? Is that strong enough? Well, I mean, it depends on the girl who reported that her older sister was missing. It depends on what she says about the level of abuse that sister endured prior to going missing, right? So if this girl, I believe she was 11, the girl who reported to the so. police? Yeah, well, the okay. one who reported, yes, was 11. And we think that the girl who died would have been around 11 when she died two years ago. So if she is 11 now, that would put her at maybe seven or eight when her sister disappeared. So then you start to get to a place of reliability about what she may be relaying to the police about abuse that took place several years ago and what she remembers about that abuse. So it gets to what did she see? How is she able to relay what she saw? And is that trustworthy given, given her age, right? So they will have to do those evaluations and she'll be examined by numerous doctors to determine that level of credibility, whether she understands, you know, one of the, the, the tests that is done is whether a child of that age understands right from wrong. Mm-hmm. Okay. It seems that this girl now does. But what what is she describing happened to her older sister and when did it happen and what were the circumstances of it happening? She might not be able to tell that story. Well, the authorities have confirmed that all three children who were taken out of the home had numerous scrapes and scars and burns over their bodies. The boy who was nine years old had so many injuries that the police actually said there were too many of them to list, which I can't, I can't even imagine. And that the boy had cuts and abrasions on his face 
and then he looked like he had something like loop marks on his legs. Would that have been if he was possibly restrained? Is it, why yeah. would he have like loop marks would make me think that there was something, you know, on his ankles or something holding him. Why else would he have that? I don't know because they're when they say loops, if they're meaning like maybe circular marks oh. on his body, there may be illnesses oh. that can cause those okay. to develop. So I, I think we would need to have more of an understanding of what those loop marks are. If they're some sort of ligature marks, that would be consistent with him being got it um, held in some sort of restraint. But 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 could they indicate? some illness that's brought brought on by malnutrition. I don't think there's going to be a doubt ultimately, obviously among the three surviving children and probably with the deceased child as well, that that all of them endured horrific abuse. It's about whether they can take that abuse and utilize it and connect it to the death of this older girl in order to um, build a murder charge against the parents. That's what I'll be really interested to see because they're not being held on murder now. Correct. And it's going to be about the interviews with those kids and perhaps what they witnessed, um, what her remains yield for them, and what ultimately the parents may confess to. I mean, we again are very early in the proceedings. As this investigation develops, as they start to discuss with each of those parents the potential for a murder charge, the potential for a death penalty, the potential for the rest of their lives in prison, one of them might even spill the beans greater than the father already has Mm. and tell stories against the other that absolutely can build a murder charge that can be sustained in court. Well, prosecutors did say that they believe that the two were a flight risk based on the fact that they found nearly $5,000 in Maribel's purse, which was apparently on the bed, along with all the family's passports. The father said, oh, no, we always have passports because we use them as ID, even though he says they're naturalized citizens. I, I don't know. Do you does that generally make you think that someone was about to take off? Well, look, whether or not the money or the passports mean they're about to take off. Uh, and burning down the house clearly would indicate that they weren't going to live there anymore. So they were going to they were going to probably flee. I think anyone potential anyone facing uh, the potential sentence that they will be given the level of abuse that took place here and the culpability perhaps for the older daughter's death is going to have real significant motivation to flee. Right? I mean, yeah. they're, they're going to be facing decades, if not the rest of their lives, in prison. And that is the primary motivation to flee is what do I have to lose? You know, if I'm facing a felony and, you know, I represent a lot of clients facing felonies and fairly serious felony charges, I might have a very strong argument that they're not a flight risk because they're not going to just disappear and be on the run the rest of their lives if they're facing a maximum of 10 years in prison, that they're more likely to confront those charges and that potential sentence rather than run the risk of fleeing and facing that sort of increase in punishment and what that means. If I have a client who's facing the rest of their life in prison on a murder charge, that client's going to be a flight risk, right? Because their, their choice is going to be a pretty clear one. Either I run now or I face perhaps my death within the four walls of, of a jail cell, and I don't want to do that. 
So, so yeah, I think this is a case where almost anyone facing those charges would probably be a flight risk. But when you add to it passports, cash, a house in embers, yeah, they're probably a flight risk. So we are we as far as we know, they're still being held and it's a cash bond that they're asking for that. And the judge also made clear if they should make it and it can be bailed out. If they bail themselves electronic out. electronic monitoring. They're going to be on house arrest. Yeah. And he has ordered they have no contact with the children. Of course, the children are in protective yeah. custody. Uh, so it would probably be hard for them to find them. But he's making it clear they don't have the right to see them. And on top of it, they're not allowed to have contact with any children. And here's what's unbelievable. So the father, Raphael, worked as a teacher's aide at two I local know. high schools. I know. I saw that. I thought that was not possible. <laughs> I mean, it, that's what's so incredible. It, it, to some extent, it's it's this, and we talked about this earlier, this hiding in plain sight of these people that are um, abusing kids in this way, keeping kids in these unbelievably horrific environments, and then walking out their front doors every day and being normal, sometimes respected members of the community. It's shocking. How this is happening, and we're seeing this in a number of cases right now. There are so many we could talk about, and I just find that so unbelievable that they can engage in their daily lives without any detection of what's happening behind those closed doors of their home. A very disturbing case. I think I, I, there's a sense of hope that I have for the three children who have been saved, although the chances of, of them— if the abuse is as horrendous as it is, to be able to have a truly normal life is going to be challenging. But with the right help, you know, they can let's just hope that they can flourish. You know, I I think also just uh, ending this story with an extremely hopeful, encouraging message to any other kids out there that might be in abusive situations, that if they pick up that phone and they make that call, either to children's services or just 911 or a neighbor. Open the window, run out the door the way that Amanda Berry did, kick through that door. If you get out there, you will find a community willing and ready to help in any way that they can. Because so many of these kids received help, not just as happened here by calling law enforcement, but by reaching out to people in the community and saying, I need your help, and they get it. So I think that is the hopeful message here. Like you said in the very beginning, it's so encouraging to see the strength of this little girl to come forward. And it's sad to say and awful to say there are probably other kids experiencing this kind of abuse. And if any of those kids are out there, the hope is that they will follow this lead and know that there really is help just on the other side of a door, the other end of a phone line, through an open window. There's help out there. That is very good advice, and and I hope anyone listening does take advantage of making that call or is inspired by this. And neighbors also, to be a little more attentive to what's happening in your neighbor's homes. Yeah. Right? Because there was also a story, and I don't remember the name of this family, but the, the the little boys who neighbors saw dumpster diving and pulled them from the dumpsters and realized that they were little boys who lived in this house and had been malnourished for years mm. by their parents. And um, so also there's there's that, that 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 hoping that neighbors will 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 pay attention. Look closely at the kids in your neighborhood and let's make sure they're all all right. 
Sadly, we go from one disturbing story to another. Um, This one is also horrific. This is the case of baby Andrew. And this is a baby who has been missing. He he disappeared in the middle of a triple murder. I call it a massacre in Miami. It's just unbelievable, this story. So on January 28th, Three women were found murdered inside their South Miami-Dade home. And the infant boy, who was about a week old, was missing because he was there with his mother. The bodies were discovered by another family member who was concerned because he hadn't heard from the three women. And the three women are all related to each other. It is a daughter, a mother, and a grandmother. And the daughter, who is 40 years old, Arletti Garcia Valdez, 40 years old, She was the baby's mother. And this is a very key point. So the baby's mother is murdered, and so is her mother and her grandmother. The next day, an Amber Alert is issued for the baby and for the baby's father. Uh, Baby Andrew was a week old at this time, and his father, Ernesto Caballero, was wanted for the murders. And it's very important. um, There was some surveillance video that was available that gave police a pretty good idea of who was at the house and at what time. They say that the video surveillance in the neighborhood shows that Ernesto, the father, shows up. An hour later, he leaves the house. He has an AR-15 rifle in one arm, and he's got baby Andrew in the other. And Perfectly legal, off. right? There you go. <laughs> Florida. Well, if you use it wisely. AR-15. <laughs> So he disappears, and police are pretty certain that Ernesto, the father, probably killed the three. They feel pretty confident about that because they were shot to death, and they're pretty confident that he's got the baby. They set this Amber Alert off, and they get a hit, if you can believe this. Um, The Amber Alert included a picture of the baby, of course, of Ernesto and the van that he was driving. Now, here's what's interesting about the van. It's like. It's this this is like connects to the story we just talked about. The van has a decal on it that says caution transporting children. Okay, this is already upsetting me. It appears that Ernesto ran Nesty School Services. He transported students to and from about a dozen South Dade elementary, middle schools and high schools. Can you believe this? This is the van that they're looking for, the van in which he transported other children. A day after the massacre, so that's the same day as the Amber Alert, the father is found dead in a rural wooded area not far from Tampa. He's about the van and and his body are about 300 miles from Miami where the crime scene is. And he has died of a a self-inflicted gunshot wound. The rifle, according to police, is found next to him. The van is about 50 yards away. It's not far from Interstate 75. Now, this is the same vehicle that had been described in the Amber Alert. Police say they found some old receipts and they found a pacifier for a newborn, but there was absolutely no sign of the baby. So they do an intense search at the area where the father's body was found, where the van was found, helicopters, bloodhounds, horses, everything you, you, you know, and it, you've seen it so many times on television, people line up all yeah. together, just not even yeah. arms width apart. And they're walking the grass and they're looking because, uh, you know, babies are. Oh my are- God. Yeah. So hard to find. That is like the proverbial needle in a haystack. 
And with all the wildlife in Florida in a rural area? Yeah. Alligators? I mean, I'm not making that up. That is that is life in Florida. I used to live there. Uh, So this is where we are now. You have four people dead, three of them murdered, one of them suicide. So it's a murder suicide. Um, And you have baby Andrew who's missing and there's been absolutely no sign of him. So the question is, at first there was a report that the police were looking into the possibility that there was a blonde woman who was seen either in or near the van. They've since said that they don't think that there was a blonde woman. There may have been a blonde woman who may have been a witness looking around, but don't believe she had anything to do with this. So the question is, did Ernesto give the baby to someone else or did he have that baby in that van with him? And then killed himself. Did he bury the baby? What did he do with the baby? What do you think? I mean, we pray that he gave it to someone, right? That there, that there must've been someone in his life or someone that he knew that he could leave the baby with. It's just horrific to think that he would have killed the baby and everyone else. Um, It seems like the baby is perhaps what he wanted. Yes. And that's why he killed the three women. And that when he felt desperate and knew that he was going to be caught, he killed himself. But hopefully, maybe one last act of mercy um, and or love for the child, he left the child with someone, and we'll learn that in the few in, in the coming days. Um, but obviously, uh, it seems unlikely that someone wouldn't have come forward and said, "We have the baby, and and he's okay." Right. Um, I mean, unless they're afraid that they could be charged. In That's this, right. I mean, you've got four people dead, three of them murdered, and you're afraid, but you're probably still better off going to police because that, if you just, right? Yeah, yeah, because I would think you'd really be making it a lot worse. I mean, if you come forward in the coming days and say these were the circumstances of what happened, clearly this was a ex- very, very disturbed man who committed these three horrific crimes and then turned the gun on himself Um it seems that you would get a pass if you just gave the baby back. They might even not require you to make any statements whatsoever. Just bring the baby uh, back to us and let's uh, make sure that he's healthy and okay. Uh, so that would be the hope. And the more time that passes where that doesn't happen, it seems less and less likely that he gave the baby safely to someone else rather than either abandoned him or unfortunately killed him. And the the problem is when you're dealing with a newborn like this, they do not have the ability to yeah, withstand no, no, no. any extreme temperatures. They they just can't. No. They can't live on their own. No. Um, <sighs> but yeah, but it seems unlikely that if he killed the three women, that it wasn't in order to get the baby and that he would have wanted the baby to survive. And if he meant to, and I hate to say this, but in some way sacrifice the baby, that he wouldn't have wanted to do that with himself and with his son in his arms, you know, that wouldn't have been the message he wanted to send to have the child just disappear. just seems so odd to me and not really consistent with how we normally see these types of crimes, which is usually that everyone, including sadly the children are are killed on scene Mm -hmm. um, or, or found with, with, with the parent. Um, This seems kind of a, a, a little bit odd that his intention was to kill himself but then kill well, the baby and not let anybody see know where he was. That well, just, I'm sure as he was driving on the interstate, he probably saw the Amber Alerts for him and the baby. 
I find it also interesting that the FBI has now joined the investigation. I'm hopefully they have some form of experts, forensics, yeah. uh, but what are they going to do? I know that the police have have said that what they're looking at right now are the 36 hours that that they know from the time that the family was murdered until he was found. Because we don't know when he murdered himself. That's, That's right. the other thing. And they, the medical examiner. I will, was going. They'll, they'll be able to establish that really easily. Yeah. And then they can come up with a tighter timeline. Yeah. And then they have to figure out where was this vehicle? Where did it drive? I'm sure it will be picked up on the interstate. So based on that kind of detective work, they can at least piece together where the father went, yeah. what his trail was, and then revisit that trail with the hopes that there may be some information about the baby and if anything happened with the baby anywhere along that trail. That's right. That's right. And his cell phone, if he had a cell phone with him, might also ping or give some evidence about where he was and what his route of travel was. It's interesting so, the police have not discussed that publicly. Because I guess you would know better than anyone, the police don't always reveal everything. They don't always reveal everything. In fact, it's really common for them to hold back really critical pieces of evidence in order to preserve the integrity of the investigation. Because if they just put everything out there, then they may get a, a lot of crazy people who call in or a lot of conspiracy theorists who call in and, and end up sh sending them down leads that get them nowhere. The three women are going to be buried this week. Uh, the family has started a GoFundMe page to assist with burial costs and uh, other associated costs with the loss of these three. Um, and the sadness is we have no idea where where this baby is. We we have yeah, no idea. Yeah. Uh, the family has said some uh, family and friends spoke uh, to news reporters in Miami, and they did say that the mother and the father of baby Andrew didn't really get along very well. And she in particular apparently was not interested in continuing a relationship with him, which is look at the timing of it. The baby had just been born. So if she had indeed pushed him out of the family, that may be what triggered this. As you said, he clearly wanted that baby. This, yeah. Everything is about this child, right? So that may have been what, what triggered these tragic series of events. Uh, yeah. And again, if there is a message to be taken from this, it's number one, be careful of the person you partner with and know that person. Well, Oh, you know how hard that is though. Boy, there's a part two that, that might be a little bit more instructive. And that is that when you are having a child with somebody, especially with somebody that you want to end a relationship with, that needs to be done really carefully because there are a lot of emotions involved there. And that child is going to become a focal point for, sadly, how people take out their animosity toward each other, whether it's a mother who's withholding the child from her father or a father wanting to harm the mother and take the child away from the mother to hurt her. So really be mindful that there are so many emotions at play once a child enters into the picture that perhaps all of this could have been handled a little bit more carefully about how we manage our relationships. And especially when we're having children with people that, yes, sometimes we have to be compromising to an extent that perhaps we don't want to be with the parents of our kids. 
Sometimes we have to make concessions that seem wildly unfair and that we don't want to make, but that there needs to be an understanding that these relationships at their end stages where kids are involved can become very volatile. And if you know your partner to be someone like this man clearly was, someone who perhaps has weapons, someone who has a really bad temper, someone who is extremely jealous or can become very obsessive about revenge, then handle that person very carefully, either by in some way managing their emotions or by putting yourself in a place where they cannot find you and where you're protected because I have represented people on both sides of these battles for children, whether it's through criminal allegations that are being made against one another or in restraining order cases in which abusive allegations are being made toward the kids or the parents. They are very complicated, very, very emotional, and have to be handled really delicately. Even if you're bringing in professionals, lawyers, judges to help mediate these these situations, it's really important to give them real attention about how you end relationships and manage custody of really young babies. And Florida records do show, Mike, that Ernesto had several arrests in the Miami-Dade area over the years. In 2004, he was arrested uh, for several car thefts and he was accused of running a chop shop. So he ended up pleading guilty on on one of the charges and he got probation. And I think it was one charge, one single charge of grand theft is what he ended up pleading to. Then he also had previous arrests for aggravated assault. There you go. <laughs> I knew that was in there somewhere. <laughs> right. I, yeah. I, I Exactly. For that and loitering. But uh, apparently those cases were later dropped. But this brings me back to what he did for a living. How is it possible that these schools in the Miami area had a contract with this man who had a criminal background to drive children to and from school? And again, you know, I don't want to jump to any conclusions. I say we look at what the investigation into that job was, um, what he was charged with doing, why perhaps some schools um, had the confidence in him to to um, uh, to do that job. Um, but again, I think in looking at it from this instructive way, these types of events do not exist in a vacuum. No, this is absolutely a man who would have exhibited to the mother of his child these violent tendencies, tendencies of obsessiveness, possessiveness, um, uh, aggressiveness, uh, and and I and I do not mean to blame any victims here, but again, when you are in a situation like that and you are pregnant with that person's child that you know to exhibit those traits, be so careful. And how you engage with them and be so careful to protect yourself from them. Don't you think that that may have been one of the reasons she wanted to break up with him? Absolutely. That's absolutely correct. But it is very hard because, again, I've dealt with clients in abusive situations and it's very hard. And I understand why. They want to live their lives in the way that they want to live them. They don't want to be scared into seclusion. They don't want to have to somehow move into an address that's unlisted and where nobody knows where they are. They want to have strength and power in the face of this abuse. 
And they want to be able to live their lives. They want to visit with their mother and their grandmother with their baby and live their life and get on with their lives and not be um, cowed into fear by this individual. But, but unfortunately, you just need to be really, really careful because you're probably absolutely right that one of the reasons why she wanted to be away from him, one of the reasons why perhaps she didn't want him near her child is because she knew who he was and who he has proven himself to be. Um, but unfortunately, it ended in just the most horrific way possible. And if there's some way to avoid it and, again, send that message out there that there are steps that can be taken when you find yourself, you know, this is a a, a a young, young baby. When you find yourself in a situation where you are with child and you know that your partner is not equipped to take care of that that child, is abusive toward you, to to really take the appropriate steps to sit back, get the help that you need to extract yourself from that situation in a way that protects you and the child. Maybe it wouldn't have made any difference here. It's possible. But the message must be, is there something that we can learn and steps that somebody can take to not end up being a victim like these three women were here? And if there is, then take those steps. And until we find baby Andrew or know what happened to baby Andrew, police are still asking people if they know anything to call the Miami Dade police department. And we have listeners and viewers all over the country, all over the world. So hopefully, you know, if you know anything, please, please call and and help this family because it's just so tragic. Well, we end with two horribly tragic stories and we're going to move on and talk about some crimes that are a little bit lighter, not quite as dark as the last two we discussed. All crime is serious, Anna. It is, <laughs> says the criminal defense attorney. It is. All crime is serious. You're absolutely right. But we can laugh at it once in a while. Well, this one. OK, come on. So this is the case of the Florida troopers who um pulled over some men who they were suspected, I guess, of drug trafficking. So the Florida Highway Patrol arrests two men. And after the troopers pull them over, they found a bag and the a bag in the car. But the bag itself, as you can see right there, says bag full of drugs. So the bag is labeled bag full of drugs. And what did they find inside <laughs> the bag? Fuddles. Bags full of drugs. There you go. There you go. Two bags full of drugs. Yeah, they found all sorts of drugs. So, of course, the guys were arrested. And these are some comments from our viewers and readers and listeners, because you could find us everywhere. Kyle P. says, I guess this is what they call an organized crime. (laughs) Cat A. says, the department can't take credit for this bust. Okay, that's true. They kind of led you there. And then John C. says, I guess honesty is not the best policy. That is, you know... This is what I call stupid crime. Yeah. There's like honor among thieves a little bit, though, right? They're they're telling you exactly what they're doing. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, they are. (laughs) Yeah, they're they're rather transparent. (laughs) I just wonder if somehow they can get those that bag excluded as like a violation of their right to remain silent or something. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) If they were placed under arrest, that maybe they could get that excluded, that it counts as a statement or something. That if I were a lawyer, I'd be saying, I need that bag uh, full of drugs. That language has to be removed. My client has the right to remain silent. I don't know. (laughs) You'd give it a try, right? I'd give it a shot. Oh, my God. 
God, you're so funny. Well, that's it for our show this week, Mike. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. For coming on. And where can people find you if they've got questions or they want to follow you? Are you on social media? Yeah, they could find me on Facebook. They could find me if they Google Cavaluzzi Law, which is just the spelling of my difficult last name. Spell it for us. C-A-V-A-L-L-U-Z-Z-I. But even if you misspell it, you'll probably come to Cavaluzzi Law so you could find me there. And you could hopefully find me back here someday. (laughs) That would be great. Thank you so much. And thank you for your insight. And as always, you can find our content on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, plus YouTube. And you can get updates and subscribe to our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. Until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast reminding you, don't do crime. And if you do, call me. (laughs) 